Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Minute 82 of Fantastic Mr. Fox Minute, the only show on the internet where we talk about Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox film, Fantastic Mr. Fox, one Fantastic Mr. Fox, Fantastic Mr. Fox at a time. What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Condra. And I'm Tyler, and we're going to talk about the credits of Fantastic Mr. Fox, which have just begun here in Minute 82. We got... At the beginning of the minute, it's directed by Wes Anderson. And at the end of the minute, it's the director of photography, Tristan Oliver. Yeah, so we get our headlining actors in this minute. And the animation director. The Hollywood stars. And the writers. And the director. And the producers. All all the quote-unquote important people of a movie. When the real MVPs (laughs) are obviously the cast, like the crew. Because without them nothing would happen i thought you meant the real mvps are us who are just sitting in our homes analyzing the movie from afar no okay (laughs) um so yeah we get director wes anderson written by wes anderson and noah Baumbach, whom was the only person i did not track down the uh extensive imdb page for wow what kind of fan are you a poor one i did i looked up two people so you already did more work than I did. Okay, he wrote The Squid and the Whale, Francis Ha, Greenberg, Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Oh, he wrote the screenplay to Madagascar 3. Oh, yeah. Rainbow Wig? Is that that one? Europe's Most Wanted yeah. is the I didn't title see of that it. one. Me neither. For some reason, like, it's a name that sounds familiar, but I think we've never really been able to figure out, like, why. Because he doesn't seem that famous. I feel like Bombac also is like an author name too. Maybe that's where it yeah, is. Maybe. Or maybe just like the, the films I listed were indie films that I've heard of referred to as like, oh, Noah Bombac wrote that, but I've just never registered them in my head. So that's why. All possible theories. Uh, in terms of writing this, wh- what do you think of their work? <laughs> Obviously, they're adapting Rural Dahl's story, and we've talked a lot about this. Yeah, they take a base theme... A pretty universal theme as we've talked about and expanded it to fit 87 minutes and 45 seconds or whatever it is well they fill it with 81 minutes then there's seven minutes credits yeah and it is something like as we talked about there were two distinct parts to this movie one of the what was in the book and how they gave credence to the book and expanded on it to have that ending sequence, basically Act 3, and how both sequences, both parts, the book part and the non-book part, had the same ending. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think we specifically talked about that, but yeah. it's So it's the farmer sitting around a hole where the fox lives, like at the tree, and with, with fox and having stolen from them. for him to come out. Waiting him out, yeah. And then what happens is that they continue the plot by flushing him out into the sewers. And and then the, we get the whole climax with kidnapping Christofferson. And then we get this new, this new third act, which is like the heightened version only for the movie, which is like breaking in to bust out Christofferson. And now the, the new climax is them still sitting around a hole again, but this time they can steal from their grocery store. It's funny that it is like both traditionally grounded in the Ruald Dahl story and in the time period of Ruald Dahl. 
because even though his stories are essentially timeless, they do have some grounding in the world he grew up in and lived in. So that 60s, 70s era that we've thrown around quite a bit as a speculation of when this movie takes place, although it takes place in an alternate universe in which Pager's cell phones exist in a 1960s world. <laughs> but at the same time, it does have that timeless feature to it that these, like, this is essentially a story about a reuniting family and the hardships that any family can face and how they realize that gathering together unites them and strengthens the situation and ultimately will improve the situation. For sure. I, and I think the the big success of the movie is that they do they do this and it doesn't feel cliche or repetitive. They do it in a way that's unique. The, obviously, the, the characters and the dialogue and the, the, the look of the movie, because it's uh, stop-motion animation, is all unique. But even just something as simple as what you said, where it's like the like the first two acts and the third act are like the same thing twice. It's the book part and the non-book part, but it's the same ending. But the fact that it feels substantial still, even when it's just kind of a repeat, is still good. Like I don't I would hesitate to use the word unique because as we have repeated many times, this is basically the same movie as The Incredibles or Rushmore, those kind of like disgruntled man, unsure of the world he's living in and hiding deep insecurities, comes to realize his family and the people around him are more important. Um, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think what I was trying to articulate was that despite the fact that it is so similar in plot, it still feels like a unique movie. Yes. in, in, In its stylization. Okay, I I agree with that. I mean, the animation in itself makes this movie stand out. And I really think it's interesting to think about the two people besides Wes Anderson that had such a big hand in this that get credited in this minute. Um, Tristan Oliver, the cinematographer, and Mark Gustafson. Gustafson? Gustafson, yeah. The lead of the animation department. Yeah, he's credited as the animation director. They both have this history of working in stop motion, but not taking any of their past works and truly creating something very iconic and individual that so works in the Wes Anderson universe. I mean, if anything, this this movie is unique in, in the way that, I mean, all Wes Anderson movies are kind of the same, but this movie, especially pre- pre-Isle of Dogs really stands out as just something that like anyone could latch onto and like when we talk about how any like any per like people who don't like Wes Anderson movies often like this movie like that's that's an important aspect Mm -hmm. of it so yeah I'm just looking at you mentioned Tristan Oliver we've probably talked about him before because he is the uh voice actor of Explosives Man okay which means at some point we talked about him yeah but I don't think we talked about him as a cinematographer yeah, he has done Chicken Run, Wallace and Gromit, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Paranorman, Loving Vincent, and Isle of Dogs. Um, so basically all stop motion, all working with different companies too. And even his earlier like shorts that he worked on and that kind of thing, those were all with different people. So he's one of those folks that people recognize him as an animation talent and pull him in. 
the Where is Anne Frank 2 is an animated, not a stop motion in the way most of his others are, but it's another beautiful animation piece that is very different than most other animations in the way like Loving Vincent is stylized to look like oil paintings and they're breathtakingly beautiful. Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched Loving Vincent yet, but thinking about it, that's definitely a movie I want to watch. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, the, the the animation is the star of this movie even more than George Clooney and Meryl Streep. I guess I don't know, do do we want to agree on that? Is that something we need to oh, agree no, on? No, that is something. I mean, the fact that we almost every minute or at least couple, once a once every few minutes we would talk about an animation technique or a a choice that they made in in movement or that kind of thing that could only be done with animation. I think yeah, or like a visual technique like camera work. Yeah, I think it really sets it apart, and we we benefit the story benefits so much from the visual cues given, but through the animation. Yeah, and the and as as anyone could tell you, like the merging of Wes Anderson's unique visual style with the stop motion really gives you the best of both worlds. And I think these two creative minds, Tristan Oliver and uh, Marcus. I'm just not looking at his name. Gustafsson. Gustafsson uh, really help elevate it to a very professional level. Uh, we haven't talked about Mark Gustafsson yet. It was funny when I was like looking through his past works. You probably don't remember this because it would have just been at like the tail end of like my childhood and you're a couple years younger, but the uh, California Raisin, those they were like horrifyingly creepy and like stop motion animations like history of california raisins and they used to be used for marketing of raisin sun uh marcus stoffson kind of designed and created these characters and i was like oh okay that's that's him okay yeah i pulled up the imdb and they look familiar although i don't know i wouldn't say i'm like an expert on them. yeah and it was something like i remember vaguely from my childhood nothing like that stands out but i remember them like being on tv and stuff and he also has a very distinct style to what he works in for claymation that is very different than fantastic mr fox and very different than like wallace and gromit he's much more blocky rough cut you can usually see the pen mark in the clay yeah he's much more a, a i was gonna say much more a clay expert in that like it's it is, it's apparent that his past is in like handling the clay as opposed to tristan oliver whom i'm assuming has done lots of handling of the clay but he seems more in as a like a director of photography probably more of an expert in the camera and taking all the shots whereas mark gustafson is probably the expert in how to move the things Oh, absolutely. That's kind of their two specialities. And it's interesting to think, though, that no one in Fantastic Mr. Fox really has that clay look to them. Other, th- I mean, the humans to some extent, but they are not super cartoony in the way like his previous works had been. And I think it more comes down to the puppetry and the rigging and their skeletal structures and that kind of stuff that really he probably brought to the table in how to make these characters seem lifelike, appealing, relatable. And if we have the uh, what these guys did completely backwards or wrong, uh, sorry, we're just we're just kind of doing that, doing our best here. Um, but thinking of producers to to switch gears a little bit, I actually so when I worked on a film festival last year, 
I was speaking to some people that were bigger in the film world and they were like, what do you do for fun? And I'm like, well, I listen to a lot of podcasts and we were like chatting and then I like casually, I never like to mention that we run this like to people that actually have real lives and jobs and things and just don't live on the internet. In film, well, like especially people in yeah. film. Although those are the exact people you want to be talking about. This yeah. <laughs> well, he was like two degrees removed of being in film kind of thing, like worked with people in film. But he had mentioned to me, he's like, he's like, oh, it's f-. he first of all was very excited to hear that we were doing this project. And then he was like, oh, did you know one of the producers of Fantastic Mr. Fox lives in this town that I was living in at the time? And when the movie came out, she like promoted it, gave some talks on her work in it and actually had supported the film festival a couple years ago with some of her insights and like was a like a star presence. And I didn't realize that and how. And you never booked her? No. I'm sorry, Tyler. I couldn't. <laughs> there, there was going to be no way. Humble little Fantastic Mr. Fox minute would have gotten one of the producers of Fantastic Mr. Fox on the show. Hey, what, what's the what's the worst? She's going to say no? Yeah. So that's not that's not that bad. But it was just funny to think that these some of these producers can even live and exist in such a weird area of the country as the one I was living in. <laughs> No, it's cool. I I didn't write down any of the producers' names because there was too many and I was running out of space on my there notepad. There were four of them. And well, and then there's like two executive producer and uh, it it just I don't I'm know. I'm surprised that I didn't notice any of Roald Dahl's family as a producer or executive producer. Yeah, I don't know if he kind of has those connections. We'd have to look up his uh, like the other movie adaptations of Roald Dahl. Well, books. I do know like Matilda Roald Dahl was invested in. He played a hand in James and the Giant Peach a little bit. And it wasn't until after his passing that more of these Roald Dahl films came out because he no longer was like, no, you can't do this with my work kind of thing. That being said, his family still plays an active role in his legacy and his estate. Yeah, Uh, I actually had the good fortune of meeting one of his daughters. Uh, she was uh, alum. You should have gotten her on the podcast. She was an alum of the under my undergrad institution, so that was pretty cool. And hey, there's still time, Condor. We got like five more minutes to record. I'm, I'm not going to contact her, Tyler. I have no way of contacting her. She came to talk <laughs> about a nonprofit that she started up that one of my friends was deeply involved in, um, and it was just cool to meet her and like hear her speak. It, her talking about her upbringing and wh- how it caused her to be the person she is today. So that was pretty cool. They're, they're like an alumni directory, though? No. You slide into her DMs? No. Okay. Uh, so you want to talk about these actors? Sure. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about some of them, but I'm always happy to talk about Meryl Streep. I'm surprised. Okay, so our order is George Clooney, Meryl Streep, Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray. Wally Wolodarski, who is Kylie. Yeah. And then Eric Anderson, who is Christopherson. Then Michael Gambon as Bean, Willem Dafoe as Rat, Owen Wilson as Coach Skip, and Jarvis Cock- Jarvis Cocker as Petey. And that's everyone who's credited in the the, the, the like, pre scroll. Yeah, the pre scroll credits, which are like the the fun credits. The official like in your contract gets to be listed at this point in um gets your name on the movie poster or on the dvd cover that kind of credit yeah 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 exactly um what were you surprised by sorry i i think the order that michael gambon was in higher 
I think this order makes almost perfect sense, actually. I this th- yes, I I understand most of it. Like it makes sense to have one, two, three. Like obviously, George Clooney and Meryl Streep are going to be one and two. No duh. Yep. I'm sub- Schwartzman because he's your Wes Anderson bro. That's has the biggest role in the movie. Yeah. Bill Murray, same deal. Badger doesn't have a very oh. big role, but he's but he's, he's Bill, Bill Murray. Murray. But Kylie before Michael Gambon, I am shocked. I, but I, I think the thing here is how much like how much work do they actually put in? And I think Kylie and Christopherson just have bigger roles in the movie than Bean. But Bean is the main I, I antagonist. Even then, though, I don't think Bean actually has that many lines in the movie compared to Kylie and Christopherson. That doesn't always matter because you can still, those more significant actors, the ones that have been in the business longer and hold more esteem, can get their crediting to be whatever they want. So maybe it was Michael Gambon not wanting it or maybe just the way the contract worked out because often credit order has nothing to do with lines oh for sure and i think part of it's because this is probably an animate it's probably because this is an animated movie and so like literally like their face isn't selling the movie just their voice and so but i would say michael gambon like Mar- has one of the best voices in this movie. like he is his like he's got that deep voice that's so iconic like it's like a james earl jones in some respects i mean james earl jones is on a different plain than everyone else in terms of voice acting but Michael Gambon still has that it's like Mark Hamill like he is a voice actor to some extent yeah I'm with you but I, I still think it makes sense that he's he he's the highest billed person that's uh, oh because Bill Murray's above yeah. him he's he's right after all the main characters like he's the highest one that's not a main character but wouldn't you say an antagonist is a main character no no he is the foil to mr fox like he i don't know antagonists drive the plot for without them they the the story wouldn't exist it's well it's kind of this 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 difference between your like protagonist is how how do you define protagonist as a synonym with main main character that's one thing and then you have your secondary characters. Do villains therefore become secondary characters because they're not the main character, or do, or do you put them in a whole, wholly different category? Like, I mean, I do think Bean didn't go on a huge arc, but we did see character development in him in that he absolutely crumbled from a seemingly poised, suave individual to someone absolutely deranged and obsessive. But how much of that is in the animation and not necessarily the voice acting? I think the voice acting definitely supported him trashing his trailer. <laughs> and like the I, his his last lines. I think at the end of the day there's it's it's something you know when it's wrong, but you you don't always know why it's right when it comes to like con, like contracts and credits. Do you, do yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes it's like really that person got billed higher and you're like, "Sure, whatever. I guess that's how it works." Like Mark Hamill in The Force Awakens. Like at the end of the day, like it has Mark Hamill in it, but he's not. He shouldn't be that as top build as he is. Yeah, but also he's the main, or he is one of the main characters of the saga, and obviously his presence is significant. Yeah. Although I was it's reading an interesting thought piece 
today about how Leia is actually the protagonist of Star Wars. And I was kind of here for it because she obviously is the strongest character. She doesn't whine. She pushes through and pushes on and leads so gracefully. And Well, I think, I think the thing there is that people sleep on the fact that Star Wars has three very strong main characters mm-hmm. and they forget how, like, how important Leia is in the first film. Yeah. And she kind of she kind of gets a little brushed aside for the next two. But she and... still kills Jabba the like she still plays really powerful leader, like convinces the Ewoks not to kill them. She befriends instead of like being hostile towards this other people's, she befriends and she's very politically savvy, regardless of the people oh. she's working with. Yeah, I mean Leia is an all time great film character for those reasons. And the the fact that she kind of gets boiled down to like, oh, she was like a damsel in distress and the buns and the it's white so dress. It's so infuriating. That's the annoying thing. <laughs> All right. Before we end, I want to, so I don't know, Willem Dafoe, Owen Wilson, Jarvis Cocker. Uh, they're, they're slightly big names. And then Jarvis Cocker is obviously the guy who did Petey's song. So it's it's fun that that's in yeah. the credits. And the, what, he, he gets an and Jarvis Cocker, which is a different contracting technique. So if you get and or with before your name, that elevates you to a different level, and that would be something yeah. specified in your contract. Yeah, that's something like in your like Garden Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like blah blah, blah Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, all supporting characters, supporting characters, and, and then it's like Vin, and Vin Diesel as the voice of Groot. Yeah, that's a totally different. Thing. Or with Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson almost always now is a with. Yeah, that's a great one for the Avengers. Like it's. You get your all six Avengers, they're your main cast, and then you're like with Samuel Jackson. You're like, oh yeah, because he was also an important part of the movie, but he's not on the same tier. Well, he's on a different, completely different island as your yeah, Avengers. He, I think tiering is the best way to describe it. That and with and your sequential order of top bills is a tiering system, essentially. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to go over these. Um, so we'll talk about like the awards that Fantastic Mr. Fox was nominated for in the future. But I was digging through IMDb and I found uh, a good award category to go through. And this is the awards given out by the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. What so is this a in, uh, international association, a national association? Do you know anything about it? Uh, uh, okay, Alliance of Women Film Journalists is a nonprofit organization founded in 2006. It is based in New York City and is dedicated to supporting work by and about women in fi- the film industry. Cool. I like uh, it. As long as they're doing it in like cool equality ways and not hurting You will you will be able to tell very quickly that they are very socially conscious. Swiggy swag. The levels of white feminism you're going to get in something that's purely film related obviously is your caveat. Yeah. So, the award that Meryl Streep won from them was the uh, EDA Female Focus Award, Female Focus Award for Actress Defying Age and Ageism. Yes, that is such an issue in Hollywood that people don't think about uh, with women in particular. That once they hit a certain age, if they don't play like the, the nurturing grandmother role, they often won't be cast, or they'll be like an angry, mean character, like older women in Hollywood are absolutely tormented by press and paparazzi um, for looking bad despite natural aging be a th- thing 
and when they try and go against natural aging, they also get called out for it. So there's this horrific double standard with older women in Hollywood. So I absolutely like love to know that Meryl Streep is recognized for that because she does very, I don't know how intentionally she is like altered her face or it's any oh, of those kinds okay. of like altered her appearance to present herself in a certain way but she definitely shows sign of signs of age in like the newer Mamma Mia movies and Into the Woods she embrace like she doesn't necessarily hide that she is older oh yeah and that's I mean and she's I think like in her classic Oscars speeches she's always like very passionate and serious about like not only women but I'm vaguely remembering other socially active stances that she has oh yes yeah no she calls out social issues very frequently because she recognizes she holds a unique position to speak out and should speak out when she can so she does yeah and she's she's Meryl Streep she has 19 Oscars like um she was nominated for well Felicity slash Meryl Streep was nominated for best animated female I like that a lot I think we've we've talked about it Felicity is a very compelling character and she holds her own in the film she's not a secondary character doesn't fall back on her husband's ways and calls him out interestingly part of the nomination was a character named Mrs. Felicity Fox I mean that is technically her name yeah, but it's 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 definitely not how she's credited in the Correct. film. I she's either credited as Felicity Fox or Mrs. Fox. That's I think she's Mrs. Fox in the book and Felicity Fox in the movie. Yeah, we'll see when we get to the black scrolling credits yeah. what it is. Um, she was nominated for the Women's Image Award, although I don't know what that means. I, I have no idea. And uh, outstanding achievement for a woman in film because in the year two thousand nine she released three films. Do you want to guess what the other films she released in 2009 were? Fantastic Mr. Fox. Correct. Mamma Mia? N- incorrect. When did Mamma Mia come out then? Like 2011? Huh. No, because I thought I was in middle school. I don't know. Um, that was too long ago. I don't know. That was 10 years ago. What is... Mamma Mia came out in 2008, so you're not bad. Okay. So do you want me to just tell you? Yes, please. Julie and Julia. Uh, oh! Had Amy Adams in it. I love Amy Adams. Oh, the Nun one then. That didn't that also come out that same year? No, uh, she wasn't in the Nun one. I don't know what the Nun one is. Amy Adams was a nun in a movie that came out right around the same time as Julie and Julia. Well, the other movie is, and this will speak to what you were just talking about, is uh, it's complicated, uh, which is mm-hmm. Steve Martin, Alec Baldwin, and it's about like these kind of grown ups and they're like dealing with their relationships, like romantically, like. I think she's divorced from her husband, but and he's married, but they're like getting back together or something. Yeah, stuff like that, which speaks to what you were saying about like the the, the ageism in Hollywood. We're like, oh, having like a kind of like a romantic comedy for your like your older middle aged people is very interesting and doesn't always obviously part of the humor. Like the humor is derived from the fact that they're slightly older. Yes, and that's an important I- thing. So I think there are these movies like The Bucket List comes to mind that also does it kind of respectfully. Well, That's a Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. Well, there's a there's a difference between your geezer comedies and your kind of like tasteful like movies that are act- like just genu- genuinely about people that are like older than 50. No, and that's what I'm trying to get at, okay. too, is it, there is that dichotomy of some will play it in a disrespectful manner and take them as like the butt of the joke. And then there are some that do it where 
they are active and they're, they're shown despite being older they're not I hate using this phrase they're not dead yet like they still have lives and are, are pro- meaningful to society and like giving the Duke like they're still people well, I don't know if like any of those like what you would call geezer comedies are inherently disrespectful because the I feel like all your like Morgan Freeman, Morgan Freeman, Robert De Niro, like they're they're not gonna sign up for a movie like Last Vegas if it like obvi- the moral of those movies can't will never be like oh we're just old so we should give up. The moral of those movies is always like oh we still have life to live. Yeah, I I guess and but I think it is important that those stories get told and they get recognized oh, yeah. frequently in media yeah. because more often than not they're not told and you only see like the sad stories of like oh the grandparents dying and although there is a new movie coming out about the Asian the Asian American specifically I believe Chinese American experience and its interactions with Chinese culture in their conception of death and how um, very frequently older Chinese or Chinese descended people don't know when they're terminally ill. Like, it's taboo for doctors to say it, but it's about this journey of uh, a young woman taking her grandmother back to China for what she knows to be as the last time. But the grandmother doesn't know that, and it looks so good. (laughs) And it's another one of those, like, respectful to i or i hope it is respectful to a culture and older people we talked about a lot of interesting stuff at this minute conjure and tyler get deep as we get into the credit well, so I'll, I'll try to dig up more interesting like film awards but that that probably was the most interesting one <laughs> i mean we will eventually unfortunately have to talk about the academy award nominations that this mo- movie received i say unfortunately because i have qualms with the academy but that's for different reasons that Fantastic Mr. Fox really doesn't have anything to do with. Just my own personal things. I did realize we didn't mention throughout this bit of the credits, uh, Letter Dance is still playing. Yes, and we're still looking at the Bogus Bunsen Bean Grocery Store. So, yes, uh, join us next time for Minute 83, uh, where we will talk more about the credits of the film. Won't it be fun? <sighs> no, <All right>. it. <laughs> we, we get to talk about... Or speculate on, get more involved in some concepts that are higher themes of the movie. Like we were talking about the yeah. theming of this movie. And and I'm big into metacognition and anything, the more critical eye outside the, the specifics of the movie. So I think we'll have fun. Yes. So no need. And I mean, this, this episode's like more than one 30 minutes long. already. So <laughs> yeah, this is like one of our longest episodes. It's like. We're talking about the credits. So, yes. Uh, Maybe it's just because we like talking to each other. Or we haven't seen each other in weeks. All right. I've been Tyler Boudreaux. I've been Condra. And we hope you have a wonderful, fantastic Mr. Fox day. Amazing.